Hey everyone, welcome back to the Builders Bell podcast. I'm your host, George Poo. And today I'm super pumped to welcome a serial entrepreneur, the founder and CEO of Rocket Dollar, Henry Yoshida, who is very successful in building his latest company, Rocket Dollar. And I'm really pumped of introducing him to you. So Henry, first of all, thank you so much for joining the show today. And thanks for having me, love George. To have I appreciate it. Great to be here. Okay, thank Yeah, we really appreciate having a founder like yourself, have multiple founding experience and exit experience, talk more about a startup. So let's dive right in. Tell us more about your company, Rocket Dollar, what it does and what customers. Yeah, the business model for us is pretty easy. We at Rocket Dollar, we're an online platform. We're customer facing and we let people open up a US-based IRA that where they can keep the tax treatment, but instead of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, uh, our customers can make private and alternative purchases. So they could buy real estate, invest in a private company. They could buy crypto, you, you name it, as long as it's not a stock bond or mutual fund in private. They okay. That's very interesting. And for our viewers who are not from the U.S., tell us more about what an IRA. Yeah. So most IRAs, it's a retirement vehicle. So basically in return for you putting away money and not having to pay taxes uh, and not accessing that for many decades down the road, the U.S. government allows you to basically just accumulate monies in these accounts, even the investment gains without paying taxes on them. So typically they start with accounts that are offered through their job. And then once you might switch to a different job, then you can roll it into an IRA. So there's currently about $14 trillion in IRAs in the United States right now. And almost all of it is invested only in stocks and bonds and mutual funds offered by big brokers. That's very interesting. So I think alternative assets is definitely the theme, like the future many fintechs are solving. And I think you guys are doing really well. So why alternative assets and what prompted you the idea of starting a company like this? Well, so I've worked in financial services now going back to, and I'm going to date myself, the year 2000. So I've been uniquely sort of in the business to kind of understand maybe trends or things that I think might become big trends, like things that start to signal that they'll be successful. So Rocket Dollar for me is a company where I have a professional background, which is working for almost 20 years and across multiple companies in these IRAs, 401ks, tax advantaged accounts in the U.S. And then looking at a signal, the me of the signal was that there was a large and growing interest in uh, consumers' interest in private and alternative investments. And I just thought that this is a trend that's going to stay. People want to do venture deals. People want to invest in startups. People obviously are investing in crypto, and that's almost become mainstream at this point. So Rocket Dollar sits at the intersection of these two very large markets, one of which I know about very well, and then the other of which I'm trying to connect and catch the wave and help people unlock money to go into those investments. Yeah. And, and I'm sure you and I both know, but just let our viewers know who right now can invest in like venture funds, alternative assets, hedge funds, and other funds. Are those like just institutions in general, very high note individuals? Yeah. I think like a lot of things. So remember, I'm old enough to remember that even in the nineties, right, it was pretty unusual for just any average American want to invest in an individual stock on their own. And now I think that's just kind of almost an everyday thing. So I think we're at the same thing 20 years later, where I think up until maybe a few years ago that it was always understood or thought that only very wealthy people or institutions made any investments into the private space, like whether that's real estate, LP and the venture funds or into tech companies directly as an angel investor. And that's changing. I think that's coming down market. Technology is enabling that. Uh, and I'm just trying to catch up and provide the capital side of that market as yeah. well. So I just think that's a that's- trend where the access and the interest to going into these investments is just becoming, you know, more available to the average person, 
with money. Okay. That's very interesting. So let's talk more about the onboarding experience. Uh, let's say I, as a customer who has an IRA account, how can I be able to utilize Rocket Dollar? How do I sign up and how do I get started? Yeah. So it's 2022. So it's kind of table stakes that you have a clean user experience and, and easy, simple digital onboarding. So for us, we combine great technology and great technology enables you to do like a very simple world-class user experience. So for us at rocketdollar.com, we have a six page. Six page total it should take the average person less than five minutes to kind of go through the onboarding process to create an account with us. We even do this by authenticating using the phone number. So you don't even have to have, create a password to remember. We just actually go off of the reputation of your phone number as your uh, account opening and password. That's very interesting. And is there any account minimum um, for us, for me to open like an IRA account? Yeah, so we took a different uh, twist on that. So instead of having an actual account minimum, we charge a sign-up fee for the account. So we have a $360 sign-up up front for opening the account. So in a way, it's a psychologically the opposite of a minimum. There is a cost to open the account, so it wouldn't make sense to open a $100 account <laughs> for by paying $360. So we just flipped it on its head. So instead of an account minimum, we have an account site. Yeah, that, that's definitely a very unique approach. I've seen many companies just struggling with account minimum problems, but I'm thinking you're doing the correct way. So yeah, let's talk more about, let's talk more about the back end of Rocket Dollar. I'm sure like you guys work with many, how many partners do you guys currently work with to provide the, the back end? Yeah. So, so right now we have a kind of content and sort of a co-marketing partnerships with about 55 different providers. And the way that we discover these uh, potential partners, and they're there at rocketdollar.com slash partners. But the way we identify is actually we learn about these partners because we have a customer who ends up investing in something on their platform or at that site uh, to do so. And then once we see that investment hit, then we reach out to the partner on the back end and ask if they'd be interested in collaborating on content that we might be able to do to tell people about our capabilities and then let them explain what their particular alternative investment platform is and what they say. Yeah. And I think as a FinTech founder myself, I think, and I, and I know many other FinTech founders early stage, like one of the toughest thing is out, honestly, like working with other FinTechs or working with other fund managers in the traditional finance space. When I go to rocketdollar.com slash partners, I saw 40, 50, or even more partners on the platform. So Henry, how are you guys able to sign up so many partners? I guess in a very short period of time, what made that? A reality. Well, like I said, what made it happen was that at the end of the day, our customers, when they open an account, they basically end up getting access to their own money that sits inside of an IRA account, which now is at rocket dollars. So they're the ones that lead us to these particular partners. And it's a pretty easy conversation when you're reaching out to a, an investment platform and say, Hey, we have a mutual customer in place right now. And we'd love to talk to you about a way to where we can help educate the rest of our community base about your particular product. And then vice versa, maybe we could tell them about your community about our capabilities, which by and large would probably end up resulting in you having access to more capital for your investment platform. So it's pretty symbiotic relationship and a win-win for everyone. Yep. Sounds like a very easy sell. I do want to go back to the customers a little bit more because Henry, you mentioned there are $14 trillion worth of IRA accounts currently in the U.S. So who's actually the early users or current users, uh, user profiles for Rockadella right now? Can you give us a Yeah. So. I think the early users for us, and I would still say that we're in the early stage, are actually people that were already looking and already comfortable and already doing research and maybe identifying particular 
private investments that they wanted to do on their own. So I think our early adopters are actually people that have already decided or are already investing in alternatives broadly. And then where we come in is that maybe they didn't know that they could use this type of money to continue making investments that they've already done. So our early investors are not just maybe people with large IRAs who have never done alternative investments. It's more likely to be someone who has already been doing alternative investments. And then we close the loop and we help introduce them to another source of capital that these same individuals might already have sitting on the sidelines to go do more alternative investments. I think that's our early adopter user base. Okay. That's very interesting. Yeah. And I think building in fintech, uh, a very common, I guess, hurdle for founders, especially for a marketplace, uh, fintech company is that how do you find partners when you have, we are very early in your stage for, or, or for example, when you haven't even built your products, how do you find partners and without partners, how do you find customers? There's always this like debate between founders. So Harry, how did you guys approach that problem? And because it seems like it worked pretty well for you. Yeah. Well, I think that there's a lot of different angles and maybe I'm a big believer in, in focus. I had to sort of drive the team early on to say, look, what, what are the things that we can control? We can't control that, that anyone else with an alternative investment platform or product is going to want to partner with us. But what we can do is we could build an onboarding platform and go and identify and, and target customers who maybe already have investments on their own. So we just decided that, that we would actually focus a lot more on the inward facing items, which are our onboarding, our own unique customer acquisition. And then if partners naturally come to us in the way that I just described a couple of minutes ago, that's great. And then in 2022 and beyond, it's actually to maybe have a deep integration with a sol certain select group of premier partners which I think will then like help us grow from, uh, at a much faster clip than we're growing right now. Yeah. And, and you mentioned about user experience. But I almost say I, that the, the answer is just focus. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You, you mentioned about user experience and I really want yeah. to dig into it. So what is the traditional user experience of an IRA account? Is there any user interface? Yeah. So once you log in, what's funny in financial services or in FinTech, I think oddly enough, your user interface actually needs to hit to sort of adhere to certain, maybe expected things that you would see from your other financial services account. And some of these might even be offered by incumbents. So a lot of us are very familiar with logging into our existing brokerage account at a major financial services company or our bank account, uh, through an online platform. So you kind of want to stick to like normal protocols that they'll see there, which is like maybe navigation on the left. And obviously when you're clicked into a certain section, you can see account holdings and so forth. So our user interface is actually designed to be something that's comfortable. I mean, I'm of the age, for example, that I actually have a lot of trouble using something like Snapchat versus like Facebook, but like Facebook, it's a methodology for somewhat older people where you can get used to it. And then in social media, you want to create something that's totally different, totally unlike what's out there, but. I think in financial services, you actually want to adhere to maybe what currently exists right now. So your, your regular user actually knows how to navigate the. Yeah, that's very interesting. So uh, Harriet, let's now talk more about your entrepreneur journey, because I've looked up your journey on LinkedIn. I think it's absolutely amazing. Well, give us a rundown of like how you start your career, your financial services and how, how you get here. Yeah. So you just, well, a quick rundown. I mean, I'm a product of, I started my career actually. Uh, right 
what as a recession was happening. So I started working in financial services when the internet bubble was bursting. And maybe in hindsight, it's probably good that I wasn't working at an internet.com startup at the time, but I was working in financial services and it was very hard um, to work with individual people who were losing money in the stock market. So that I spent 10 years at Merrill Lynch. I learned a lot about how to set up these 401ks and IRA accounts. Then I continued doing that in, in my own business that I started a management consulting business. Um, and that got me a little bit deeper into 401ks, IRAs, and the unique structures of these particular accounts in the States. And when I felt like there wasn't much left for me to do from an impact standpoint, I took the plunge and like maybe a lot of the listeners that you have on the Builders Build podcast here, that you started doing a lot of research into maybe a business idea that you think you could start or that you could excel at. Um, and I put together probably what would be considered the wireframe for a pitch deck, ultimately developed that into a thesis for a business model, which became a robo advisor, put together that pitch deck and then actually then presented to investors, which landed a seed round of funding for us. So that, that was my first foray into startups before that I'd never even invested as an angel into a startup. Yeah. So I just kind of went right into pitch deck, pitching investors landing one to leave the seed round, building the business and, and going from there. And now I'm on my second one. I've made many angel investments along the way. Yep. That's very interesting. We, we can probably talk about the entry investments <laughs> at the end of the podcast, but yeah, I think basically your journey has been very interesting and you started multiple companies, but I do want to talk more about, I've spotted a trend turning today's founder network is that a lot of founders uh, they actually came from the financial background. Uh, for example, they, they, for example, you work at Merrill Lynch. There are many founders who used to work at large financial firms. And now they're starting their own startups and some of them are actually having difficulties of getting used to the different culture of between finance and tech. Have you ever noticed there's this type of difference and getting. Yeah. I mean, well, so obviously they're starkly different, but I would say that maybe in startups, uh, you have a different mentality towards like uh, testing and risk. So I think in my side, right? Like I got to test different versions of our onboarding flow, test different ideas, maybe test even like bringing on certain employees to the team. And those are quick decisions. Like you gotta be able, you gotta be able to make a move on probably what is going to be limited data and limited insight, just because in a startup, you don't have time to basically fully bake the entire idea. That's very different than a big company and a big company, my 10 years at Merrill Lynch, I mean, that was a long time and I was there through the internet bubble bursting and the credit crisis. So in a way, I almost kind of view my 10 years at Merrill Lynch less of a learning experience and more of a survival experiment that, that you just didn't do too many things to rock the boat. You're almost taught not get noticed and not to try things. And then in startups, it's the exact opposite. Your board will get on you if you're not testing and trying things and spending money and stuff. They'll actually get more angry yeah. for you not doing anything. So <laughs> that's a yeah. big culture shop. It's almost the exact opposite. Yeah, it's very interesting. And, I, and I'm sure, have you ever heard when you started the business, have you ever heard people say, okay, this is too risky. Um, or this is like very hard to work. Do people ever say that to you from traditional financial uh, industry or well, just friends? Yeah, I, I would say that I'm a better startup founder because I did spend time in corporate America. I think that some people think that they might be born to, to be in that startup realm or in that corporate realm, one or the other, and they maybe go too quickly into the startup realm. I think that some of the things I did learn, the framework, the time management, maybe being able to be a team player. I mean, I'll give an example right now. We have one engineer on our team who came very early, really talented, but this engineer is your typical been coding since they were a kid, didn't really go into a formal structure, has never been with a company that's larger than a small and never went to like even college. 
you go do these things. So that I spend with that engineer is, is way less about developing their engineering skills and more about like now understanding that as we're growing as a company, that they have to, they can't just keep everything in their head. They have to write things down and they have to be a part of a team. And that's kind of hard for this person. And I think that corporate America taught me a little bit about how to be a part of a team, but probably more importantly, how to understand that there's a lot of perspectives to take in before making a decision. Yeah, I, well. I totally agree with that. So I think I totally 10 years they're helping with that before starting companies. <laughs> okay. And, and yeah, let's now talk more about like multi-founder mindset, because I know Henry, like you just mentioned, you started, this is your second company. I think your first company is called Honest Dollar. Well, I had my consulting business before, so that wasn't a tech okay. startup, but yeah, you're right. My first startup was called Honest Dollar, not to be confused with my current company, Rocket Dollar. Yeah. And uh, can you just let us know a little bit more about what it does? Because it is a successful startup. I think it did eventually got acquired and before, and then you started Rocket Dollar, but tell us more about what the previous company does and what you have learned. Yeah. Well, it was the same thing. I mean, there's a lot of thoughts. So I think that people just maybe from the outside looking in, they think that, well, you just immediately do a startup, like you come up with an idea and you're running with it. But the reality is I think there's a lot of reflection and sort of understanding a problem and what your unique you know, capabilities and perspective and sort of approach might be to building a company to solve that problem. So an honest dollar, it was the same thing. I looked at the area of work that I knew, which were financial services specific to these retirement IRA, 401k tax advantaged accounts, uh, held even back in 2014 by millions of people. And even then, although it wasn't quite 14 trillion, it was still close to like eight, nine trillion, eight to nine trillion, uh, trillion dollars of money. And the other outside trend this time was something, again, I don't, I don't know much about the outside trend. I know my particular professional area of expertise, these accounts. And then you look for signals for trends outside of that. So the trend I saw then was that, that there was this gig economy worker, and I think now it's probably called more the creator economy, but gig economy worker revolution that was happening. So this is when like people were working full-time for places like Uber, Lyft, Upwork and Fiverr and others. So what I wanted to do, what Honest Dollar was a simple mobile app-based savings tool for gig economy workers, because gig economy workers didn't have a company retirement plan or company insurance or company provided investments. So I don't know anything about insurance. So I, but I do know about company provided retirement benefits. So I decided to offer that at an individual level to gig economy workers and that, and then the delivery vehicle for that was a robo advisor in a, in a mobile app to that population. That's, That's very interesting. It's very interesting. I, and it did eventually got acquired. So it's a success story. And can you share, I, I know there's some things you cannot share, but can you share more about? Yeah. The well, so for us, I mean, a lot of companies, and we were talking about this, George, and we were talking about this in the discussion notes that, that there's a lot of articles that are written about XYZ company gets like ABC amount of money for their series A or for their series B or for their series C or they, and so forth, and maybe less uh, information out there for a lot of these companies that might. So in our case, like we go through the stages of a business. So like the, uh, the pre-starting of the company, which is the idea of thesis development, and then how you're going to approach solving a particular problem you identified, and then putting together the presentation to go and try to attract investors, you secure investors to get the business started. And then once you secure that the investors to get started, you build the product and you're starting to slowly see if there's a product market fit. So people actually want to use your product. And I define that by people wanting to pay you or people willing to talk about your product to others. 
And once you're past that stage, and that's the seed stage of the company, then you're really left. Maybe in, the, in most startups, you're going to be looking at a series A stage. So we were no different than anyone else, but we ultimately determined that there was actually some things that we couldn't do with our gig economy focused investment platform. And we ultimately decided that the customer acquisition costs for us or the distribution channels were going to be too difficult and too expensive as a standalone company. So that's when we actually started telling people uh, that we weren't necessarily for sale, but we were open to strategic partnerships for distribution. And then that kind of led to some conversations inbound, which ultimately ended up in a sale to Goldman Sachs. But it was our sort of self-realization, as you mentioned, George, like maybe what on the outside looked like a, a pure success, we actually were self-aware enough to realize that there was a very big missing key component that could be solved with a ton of capital, but maybe that wasn't the best, the best solution to throw at that problem was a ton of capital yeah. and giving up a ton of equity. So that yeah. took us down uh, a different I, path. I, I think that's very interesting. And you're definitely right. Like from the outside world, series A, series B, series C, D, E, F. Like raising those rounds just seems so glamorous. And I think you, you really Henry, pointed like the right direction about how internally running their startups are actually difficult. And it's not just about the money, it's about right. everything else, right? So yeah, well, there's the, there's the expected path I and mean, it's no different than life, right? I mean, you expect that all kids of, let's say maybe lower middle class and higher are expected to go through elementary school, middle school, high school, and then go to university and so forth. But, but for other people, maybe that's not the ideal path. Like maybe they take a different path. They get into a vocation where they have some talent, maybe like a musical talent, for example, and so forth. So they end up starting a career at the age of 16 and that's not a normal path, but they may have been extremely successful mm. by going down their yeah. path. It's just different yeah. than the one that is kind of laid out for everyone. So like I, like I was saying, I think the one that's publicized the most, most is a company that does, it goes through a Y Combinator then lands like a great seed round. And then a year and a half later, they raise like an A round and then they do a B round and a C round. And then they're kind of continuing to grow and they're thinking about going public via SPAC or IPO. I think that yep. if you're self-aware that that known path doesn't necessarily need to fit everybody. And what if instead you were able to take a, some massive exit with very little capital invested in the company and you return 10 X to all your investors. Yeah. With and a I think 30 it is compound annual rate of return, like an IRR, yeah. those people are going to be very happy having. Yeah. And I think it's a story of now a lot of founders think they can go to series G or series even further and go public. But I guess the truth is, I'm sure you and I both know, like not every company is fitted to go through that path. And sometimes it just makes sense to just get an exit or get acquired. And so what do you advise yeah. like founders to think about this when they're going through like later stages or even series A, series B, series C? What well, should they tell so themselves? Look, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, so let's just assume that let's baseline here for everyone listening to the podcast here, that maybe in the beginning stages, if you're listening to this podcast, that you've decided the first fork in the road that you've decided is that you're not going to bootstrap, that you're going to raise outside capital. So let's just say that you took that fork and let's just say that everyone, uh, for the sake of just baselining is in that position. Then the next one needs to be that you've decided to take in capital. So you need to always now be positioning down a different track, but your venture investors who funded you at the seed round or maybe the A round, they're always going to like probably be behind you to go raise more money and kind of do that next stage, especially if you're a seed investor, right? They want to help you land a great A investor because that's a markup for them. But my advice to founders would be that, that 
it's important to listen to the perspectives of your venture investor if you choose to go down this route, but understand that their messaging to you is 100% based on getting to that next stage of funding. Maybe you could reserve 25% of your mind and thinking to self-awareness and understanding that maybe your business might not be fit for that. It might've been a fit for that at the seed. It might've been a fit at the A, but just understand someone who decided to become a world-class musician, uh, and not go to school past 16 or join the NBA, like LeBron James, right out of high school, actually probably did most better than most of the people they grew up around that went to the typical high school, then college, then training program at a fortune 500 company and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. And it's I think, an unusual I, path. It's just not always right. But remember, everyone in America will tell that person that you need to go to college, you need to study these fields, and you need to get a job at a big company. Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, it's good advice for a lot of people, but not everyone does it. And some people become spectacularly successful doing something different than the normal path. And you could do that in your startup too. Yep. Yeah, I agree with that. I but think you need VCs to be self-aware enough to know what's best for you. Yeah. And I think like VCs, they kind of have their own. I want to say agenda, they have their own goals of having you getting higher valuations. I definitely agree with you on that. For founders, who do you think is the yeah. best person to reach out to talk about, you know, this stuff? Because I'm sure you just said, don't talk about your venture investors because they might just want you to raise a future round. Who would you recommend? Yeah. So, so you're asking like, who do I think is the best person to kind of, I mean, probably the best person is you could stay in touch with founders who are maybe like not not out of reach for you, but just people that are slightly ahead of the path than you are. And so there's always that out there, right? I mean, I would tell you right now that, uh, if I had to guess, right, even the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musk of the world actually still get some advice from founders who have done multi-billion dollar uh, companies and stuff before them. So there's always someone who's been down the path that you're on and you don't want to talk to someone that's so far down the path. I mean, I would say right now, it, I'd venture to guess that although it may be good for your audience to have Jeff Bezos on. A lot of the advice that Jeff Bezos may give a few as on builders build may not be too practical for all of us in the audience at this exact exactly. moment. Exactly. Me, and someone yeah. who's just slightly further down the path, like series A back startup, talking to someone who's thinking about doing a startup or raising a seed round, probably helpful practical yep. advice because I'm not yep. too far and down the path past anyone on yep, this too. Totally agree with that. So let's talk more about when your founders think about acquisitions and, or being acquired because you mentioned for your previous company, it was like, kind of like a, I, I wouldn't say a roadblock, but it's something that's kind of, you feel like it's going to be a too much hurdle to overcome is something like that. Or do you have other thoughts for this? Well, I would actually say that thinking about exits and like M and A and getting your company acquired is not something that you wake up every day thinking about, uh, maybe like the ultimate goal is the only way that you're going to get out of a company is some form of an exit. So. Maybe like 80% of the time in the startup world, that could be like you bankrupt the business. 10% of the time you get acquired and maybe the other 10% of the time, but you have an opportunity to take the company public. Okay. So those are really the only three ways you can exit, but they're probably not evenly distributed. One third, one third, one third. And I think even 80, 10, 10 is probably, uh, being very generous to the 10 and 10. So, but. In startups, I don't think you, you think about that when you're doing the business. I mean, your best job is to actually just focus on the business and just work on the controllable factors, which is everything that you can do, all the hard work you can put in to continue building the product, to continue thinking about distribution and sales channels, to maybe thinking about how to continue building out the team. And I think if an opportunity comes up for you to think about an M&A deal, then, and 
the timing is right. And again, back to my earlier point that you're self-aware enough to know that there's certain things you won't be able to do on your own, then you explore it, but you don't wake up every day seeking it. I'll, I'll give a great example. Like we were talking about some great people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, but you know, there's a very famous board meeting. Google had made an unsolicited $1 billion offer to buy Facebook early, right? Mark Zuckerberg, founder, CEO, and he, they had to call a board meeting because this is a bona fide, uh, you know, offer that came and it's a billion dollars. I mean, this is a billion dollar exit for Facebook, but Mark Zuckerberg in his mind, he knew, like he knew that he was in a position from a growth standpoint and there were obstacles that he was going to be able to overcome. So he started the board meeting, walked into the board meeting and told all these people, and this had people like Roger McNamara, Peter Thiel and Jim Breyer, very famous, very well-known investors slash entrepreneurs. And he started it, Mark Zuckerberg, by saying, hey, guys, clearly, hey, we got an offer from the guys down the street, but, you know, of course, we're not going to take it at this point. And this is why, because, boom, these are the other things that we could do. And that's like severely undervaluing us. Whereas let's say that he was having back then the same problems for like data privacy, or maybe like the big brother stuff. He might've gone to that board meeting and say, these are reputational things and security issues that we're going to have a tough time overcoming. So... Why don't we see if we can get this deal across the finish line? Because at this, if these same like security and the reputation issues that had happened then, he might've approached that meeting differently. But at that particular point in time, he knew that there were a lot of growth opportunities ahead and it made no sense. And he was right. Obviously it's even being down 35% year to date here as we record this podcast, company still worth 650 billion. Yep. Totally. I think you mentioned a very interesting point, Harry, is about the board. And I think especially when you are in a later stage or even past Series A, any company usually have some board members on the board. But if you want an acquisition or being acquired, you usually need to approach. So is that usually like a hard thing to do as a founder? Because as you said, some board members might want you to keep raising. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's a hard thing. I mean, remember your relationship with your board is that there's, they're there to help you and support the company, right? So any opportunity, both good and bad. And I would say that probably that you concentrate too much on always trying to portray the good information to them, but your board is actually different. Your board is actually there in the trenches with you. So you might almost be better off and have a better relationship if you actually spend 80%, 80% of the time in your interactions telling them about the things that you don't know the answer to, or the things that you're having mm -hmm. a hard time with, or the problems within the business, right? Because they're your board, they're on your side. Yeah, that kind of stuff. I, so I, yeah. I might almost say that you should talk to them differently than probably how you should talk to a prospective investor. Prospective investor, you're probably communicating the forward potential, the great things, the foundation. But once they're on your board and they're an investor, then you should be telling them that you know, I did this podcast with George. He had me on there because I'm like this multiple <laughs> founder type person and he's treating me as if I know all the answers. But man, I'm really having a problem with this and with that. Do you know anyone or have you ever kind of experiences. Is there something you can help? It's very interesting. I think you have so, more yeah. respect if you open it up that way. Yeah, exactly. I, I think nowadays, like a lot of founders, I know a few founders, I don't know, they mostly report good news to their, and I think you're right. Investors are very different from board members. If they're just an investor, but they're not on the board, you might just yeah. share with them mostly good news, some bad news, not entirely mix of both. Okay. Because the company isn't always going to be doing great. There's always problems. I mean, this doesn't matter what company you're with, right? I mean, the, there's probably some difficult things they need to talk about and address at the board level at companies from Tesla and Facebook and Microsoft, all the way down to the startups and the audience here for builders build as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. 
And and speaking of M and A, I think like also one of the scenarios of a potential M A is like the founders are focusing on building the company, the founders are focused on you know scaling the company. But now there's like a private equity firm or like a larger company that reached out say, uh, for example, hey Harry, are you interested in a conversation of potentially? Well, they probably wouldn't say that you want to start a company in the first day, but kind of give you the perspective they want to. So how would you how do you suggest founders approach this type of situation? Well, I, I actually think that rather than thinking about all the external factors, I mean, it, it's easy to get distracted as a founder, right? Just to kind of always yeah. be doing other stuff. But uh, at the end of the day, I mean, the title of your podcast is Builders Build. So the best and use, the, the best and highest use of, of an entrepreneur founder's time and time is actually continuing to build their business and build their product and lead their team and so forth. And then maybe the other stuff is a little bit ancillary, raising fun, raising awareness around it. You need, you just need to have a great business. Like you need to have this sort of curiosity to understand your product and your, the reason for your product's existence to, to combat a certain problem that maybe you had personally, and that's what prompted you to start the business in the first place. But how's that more broadly going to apply to a much larger part of the population, right? How can you solve this problem at scale? And if you focus on that and not so much about like the inbounds, I mean, that happens all the time, by the way, you're going to, I mean, if you say you have a startup, you're going to immediately start getting random messages from people saying that they're a venture funder or a potential investor or potential like partner wanted to talk to you. It, yep. It's really uh, easy to fill up right. 125% of your day doing that. And then you realize that you've spent no time actually trying to build your business, which was what you originally set out to do. Yeah. And I think you mentioned a very great point about building the company in early stages. So let's go back to when you just had the exit of the, your first company and before you started your second company, or which is current company, Rocky Dollar. Let's talk more about the, I guess, the product market fit or how you validate the problem. Is there something that you always know is a problem for folks? Or how did you approach like validating the issue and finding out there's a problem to be solved? Yeah, well, what is it? I think for me, I talked to, I talked to small micromanagers on the, in the VC space and they said that I'm trying, I have, let's say a hundred conversations with people to potentially be an LP in my small emerging manager fund. And maybe five to 10% of them ask if they could actually make the investment using an IRA type structure, but it's really hard for me to accept those dollars or they don't actually know the platform. So it just kind of started from there thinking that that's a problem that someone else experienced, right? This emerging fund manager is trying to raise money, but then maybe five to 10% of the people they solicit for LP investments are telling them that they might want it, that the LP potential LP says they want to do it this way, but there isn't a very good vehicle for it. And then my own thinking is that, you know, I actually know a lot about the space. I think I could create an, an easier online platform to, to unlock the enable link of those dollars and so forth. So we have conversations. I mean, I just want you to know that from the time that my last startup got acquired to the time I started rocket dollar, it was actually a two year period in there. So there was a lot of sort of thinking, talking, examining, again, going back to the earlier part of the conversation, the signals in the broader market of what was out there. And what I started noticing was that there are a lot of people looking at things in the private space, whether that's crypto, real estate, or angel investing into startups. It was just broadly mm -hmm. that people were looking. Yeah. And I, I'm glad you mentioned there's a two-year period because I was going to ask that as a multi-founder. For some founders I, I personally know or on the internet, like after their exits, they just usually do angel investing or pick up angel investing or even just pick up a VC job and just do, do it that way. So very rarely founders do start their second startups and keep grinding. So what yeah. made you decide well, to keep me, grinding? for me, it's kind of funny. I mean, I, I stereotypically to, your, to what you just mentioned, I did that. I did a little bit of angel investing, but I actually did it 
from the purposes of trying to learn how to be a better startup founder. So I didn't actually do it because I thought I'd learned everything I needed to learn in my first startup. I actually did it because it was a way for me to sort of interact with founders building businesses without actually having to be completely tied into the one business I was building. Cause I, quite frankly, I didn't have an idea. The idea has to come to you, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And how did, like, how's the angel investing going? Because I know the trend recently is like a lot of founders are going to angel investing and we are in a very good market for angel investors. So how would you say your journey has been? Well, I deployed most of the deals I did were kind of in that maybe 16, 17, 18 and 19 time frame. And then as deeper into this business, like when I realized that we have an opportunity, there's institutional investor appetite for rocket dollars business that. Um, I didn't do anything after that just because again, I have a responsibility to my team and to my shareholders to be a hundred percent focused on my business. So I kind of stopped doing that. I enjoyed it because it was a way to really, uh, I guess, align with founders, uh, by having a small amount of skin in the game with them. It proved to them that, that I really did want to be a part of that team and, and learn and talk to you. But that's kind of why I did it. It was a way to support a founder with an idea that I thought had a chance. Okay. But and I learned like... as much from them as they may from me. Yeah. What, what was the journey post-investment? Because I rarely hear people talking about it as from a founder or angel perspective. What is it like after you? Well, I think for me, my job is I have a little bit of money in there. So it's the offer to be helpful. Some founders kind of will ping you every now and then ask for some advice, ask you about things. But for the most part, I try to let them operate their business and be heads down. I'm a founder too. So I understand that it'd be very hard to have conversations over and over again with existing shareholders of yours. So I try to leave them alone and I'll just kind of stay updated through the updates and then make myself available if they choose to reach out and want to talk about stuff. So the journey is pretty passive, I would say from my mm -hmm. side and my style. Yeah. That's very interesting. A uh, very interesting approach. And that, let's not get back to you, Henry, being a founder. I think one thing I noticed is that Rocket Dollar has been a multi-year startup already, but you guys are very patient in terms of raising capital. And so I think you got, did you guys just close your series A, I guess not recently, but very quite recently. Yeah, pretty recently. So fourth quarter of 2021. So again, people will tell you different things. They'll say, raise as much money as you can while the markets have capital to flow to startups. I mean, I'm more of a believer that, that I raise capital that gives me a reasonable chance with a little bit of buffer built in to get to the next stage of the business. Right. And then not yep. looking so much and then just understanding that I need to always be thinking long-term about my business. So even though startup runways and startup capital and maybe like startups fee always kind of indicates that the story is short run, you need to kind of think long-term of what you want to be. So I have a vision for what the company, what I want the company to be ultimately, but I also have the reality of the day-to-day -day of what we can build and deliver on today. And the amount of capital that I choose to take in is enough to help me reasonably get to that next stage yeah. with the right incentives aligned because. I don't know. I'm a believer that I think startups could raise more capital than they need right now. Maybe that was the opposite five years ago. It was hard to get capital, but right now we're in an environment where you almost have to have discipline another way. I don't know. I look yeah. at it that, that let's just use a personal analogy for everyone that's a listener here. The credit card sitting in your wallet probably has a, a limit of, let's say $20,000. That doesn't necessarily mean you should go buy something for $21,000. Yeah. And, and what do you think? Fact, you absolutely shouldn't, but. Yeah. Well, what do you think, Harry, is like, I guess, like the side effects or the negative effects of over-raising? Because the market's been looking like that. Well, the thing is that, that the over-raising, of course, is that then you have a misalignment 
of goals. Like the whole point, if you were over raising it because an investor thought that, that you could reasonably hit some sort of numbers and grow into them and earn, get to the valuation that someone invested in at a forward level. But if it looks like you're not going to be on track to do that, then your company is going to be punished in the next yeah. round. And that's going to be a bad signaling. So I don't know, again, all I'm saying is that if the general consensus right now is that founders can get access to more money than they probably need, and they're taking that, um, I don't know if that's necessarily healthy. Again, the aggregate credit limit in America were some amount in the trillions. And most people were like taking very close to those limits all the time. That is a very unhealthy sign for the economy. Yeah. That's uh, very insightful. So I guess last question for, before we go, what's yeah. the next three to five years or even more if you're applying for Yeah. So for me, the path that, that I've talked about with my series, a investors and board members are that I, I have full intention this time. If, unless I become self-aware that there's some problem that I directly within the company can't overcome directly, but my intent is that we would go to market in 2023 for a series B round. That will afford us the ability to run for another two years and grow into evaluation. And I think that based on where we think our metrics are going to be, that, that positions us to have a high mid to high nine figure valuation company three to five years from now, yeah, healthy well, company. So like we, we would be, uh, we would probably expand from like the current two products that we have and maybe having five, we would have a very good line of sight and good integrated partnerships. We'd be series B backed and we'd be at this sort of like mid to high nine figure valuation. That would be my goal. That's the forecast projections that we have for. Yeah. And, and the product type, do you ever think one day to move more than just IRA accounts um, into Robinhood like type? App? We could. So we, those capabilities. So when you say IRA type, would we have intentions to broadly expand beyond different to different products in the financial services space that individual uh, retail investors would use? And the answer would be yes. That makes a lot of sense. It's that, that I don't think that anyone would have invested in the early days of Jeff Bezos at Amazon if he said that he planned on selling books for 40 years. 25 years in, now he's basically the database-backed infrastructure for all of our startups, the government, and they pretty much sell everything in existence all over the world. Yep. yep. That's uh, very interesting. I think, I think and, and that's the direction for the future, right? Yeah, I think it's yeah, yeah. And it's to stick with it. So I guess maybe the better answer to your question is that my goal is to kind of keep building and keep growing this time around, unless there's some reason that I can't overcome on my own that forces me to go a different path. But if you were to ask me at this exact moment, what's my path? You know, it's that I'm sticking around. I'm not Tom Brady, right? I'm not going to retire in, under, <laughs> in the same three weeks. Yeah, it's uh, very interesting. Yeah. So I really appreciate you coming on the show, Harry. I think as multi-founder, and someone who has like a experience of their company go through going through an exit and going keep continuing starting another successful company i think you've taught us a lot about experiences of scaling building a company and even MA. so thank you so much for being on the show and hope to catch up with you very soon enough yeah thank you very much george thanks a lot everyone builders build a BlueMex podcast is hosted by George Poo and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Builders Build content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit BlueMex.io to join us on Discord.